0: You're listening to another New Hope Chapel New Hope Podcast. Podcast. Hi, this is
1: Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Steve and Julie Coleman, members of our teaching team, as they present our sermon series on Habakkuk.
0: Well, welcome to the second message on the book of Habakkuk. My name is Steve Coleman, and we plan to do all three messages in this series uh, with a team teaching style. Julie Coleman is going to, uh, to be the other half here as they say, the better half. So if you're listening to a recording of this, you're going to hear a high voice and a lower voice. Mine will be the lower voice. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the format of our teaching here at New Hope Chapel, both Julie and I are members of the six-person teaching team, and uh, so we're going to be working. Um, this, these, this series is ours to give. So the preliminaries out of the way. Let's recap what's going on so far. In chapter 1, Habakkuk has a conversation with God, an awkward one from Habakkuk's point of view, because first of all, he wonders why the wickedness of Israel, God is just letting go by, the wickedness under Jehoiakim. God answers and says, oh, don't worry, I'm bringing judgment, I'm bringing judgment through the Babylonians who are going to invade, and this really presents angst for Habakkuk, because he can't understand how God can use a nation more unrighteous than Israel to punish Israel. And he asked God that question. And we left Habakkuk waiting for his answer from God. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he says to me. So we read God's reply after that. Habakkuk, uh, beginning in verse... Chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And the Lord replied, write down the revelation... Make it plain on tablets, so that the herald may run with it. He goes on. The Revelation, he says, speaks of the end and will not prove false. It will certainly come and will not delay. You know, the ancient prophets had, typically, would write the prophecies on scrolls. And that would be uh, on papyrus. Uh, But uh, in this case, God's saying, write it on tablets. Either stone, wood, or metal, where they would carve it actually into... Uh, The material. An example of a papyrus, an ancient Jewish text on the left on the screen, and on the right, a, a, a portion of a stone tablet where Hebrew is carved in. So God was saying, Judgment in Babylon has been decreed. He wanted to communicate to Israel that it will happen, that it will not change. You can be completely confident in it. As we would say today, it's set in stone. God then moves in the next section to talk about Babylon. And his reply is, the other part of his reply, Babylonians are puffed up. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faith. And then God goes on to say, He's arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives of all the peoples. God describes them as puffed up and also that they're not upright. Well, that word "puffed up" is interesting. Uh, you know, we sort of have an English definition for it. Uh, it's used in the Old Testament here and in only one other place. So it's a word not commonly used as a word like pride or something else. It's used here, and it's used in Numbers 14. Let me tell you a little bit about that story. This is after the Exodus, and Israel had had left Egypt, and now they'd come to the edge of the Promised Land. And God had said, go in, I'm going before you. Uh, The protection of the people is off, you will... Go in and take the land. Well, the people, for a number of reasons, I won't go into here, uh, refused. No, we're not going in. We don't want to face that, those people and that problem. And they actually said, we want to go back to Egypt. We're going to raise up a leader, aside from Moses, that will take us back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron pleaded with them. Uh, And he said... They pleaded. They said, the Lord will bring us to this land and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. The Lord is with us. But the people got so angry at that they wanted to stone them. God intervenes and says, look, these people have seen my glory. They've seen the signs that I performed in Egypt. And 10 times they have tested me and rebelled against me and not listened to my voice. So Moses, tomorrow... You take them back into the wilderness, they're going to wander for 40 years till this generation dies off. Then I will lead their children into the land. And here's where uh, our text starts. The people mourned. And the next morning, they, this is in verse 39 and 40, the next morning they went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place where the Lord has promised. But Moses said, do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. You will fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. And the Lord is not with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down. So here's this word, heedlessly. That's the same word as puffed up in Habakkuk too. What's interesting, doesn't sound like the same word, but here, look at Israel's situation. They had rejected God. They had chosen to disobey. They were actually calling it now, they've renamed their disobedience and they're calling it obedience. Rebellion and they're receiving the consequences. They had rejected God, they'd focused on themselves and what they wanted, and they're willing to threaten and abuse Moses or anyone else who stood in their way. Just as Israel received judgment there, God says the Babylonians were puffed up and scheduled for severe judgment. The consequences of their rejection of God are... and going their own way, their greed and abuse and oppression of others. Do you see the parallel? Yeah, maybe not on the same scale, but it's the same type of rebellion. So maybe what we can do, as we kind of try to get a picture of this puffed up, is sort of look at these two scenarios and suggest that it's a combination of not listening to God, but instead going your own way, one's own way, with a certain level of pride and self-assurance. That's what the Babylonians were guilty of. And he, I don't know if Habakkuk made the connection with this use of the single word, but we certainly can see it in the way God characterizes Israel. Well, God has also tucked into this description his idea of what being upright looks like. He says the righteous will live by faith. This is the great contrast with the Babylonians. Faith in God. This is what Habakkuk had. He had faith in God. He believed. He struggled and asked questions. But he still had his faith in God. It's what God wants from us. It's the simple step that avoids the primary error of the Babylonians.
1: So God's shown Habakkuk the contrast between those proud Babylonians and then those who lived by faith. Um, so now he turns and he tells about the fate of those haughty Babylonians um, who stand in contrast with those who believe. By their faith, the righteous will live. And the proud, the, by, because of their pride and their um, uh, that heedless attitude, the Babylonians are going to reap what they sow. So what God does is he gives Babylonian, excuse me, Habakkuk, five proclamations. And and, and, um, if you are reading in your Bible in Habakkuk 2, you'll see that each of them starts with the word woe, if you have a certain translation, um, (laughs) W-O-E. And uh, so they all begin, each of the proclamations starts with that word, so it kind of divides them up into separate proclamations. Um, this is a word, a Hebrew word, that you've probably heard before if you've ever hung out with anybody that's Jewish. Um, it's, it's, the word is hoy, and you've probably heard it in the phrase, oy vei, right? That oy is that word. It's, it's Hebrew, and it's used as a pronouncement um, about something very regrettable or disturbing. Um, in the Bible, in different translations, we see it translated in different ways, like alas, or ha, or woe. And that's what my translation uses, is the word woe. But every time we see that word in Habakkuk too, it marks a new pronouncement of doom for the Babylonians. So, and each woe is kind of a, 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 given a word picture to help describe, to help the, the listener understand uh, what that woe is talking about. So it's going to be uh, a little interesting going through. The first is a picture of the crime of extortion. Okay, So here's the text. It starts with, Oy, right? Woe to him who increases what is not his for how long and makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of the human bloodshed and violence done to the land. So you have this word picture here of plunder. And I used a picture of pirate booty, <laughs> um, and it's it's the plunder that they would go in. Babylonians would go in, and they would uh, rob each uh, people group of what was valuable. Um, that word, your creditors, that you saw um, just a minute ago, usually that verb means to bite, literally to bite. And that's what a creditor does. He takes a bite out of the possessions of the person to whom he lends money. The Babylonians had shamelessly plundered every nation they had conquered, and the judgment would be very fitting. The tables were going to turn, and the Babylonians were going to become plunder for those very nations that they um, had extorted. Okay, now there's the second woe. Oi! Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the land, hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many people so that you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Okay, now this word picture is a little bit different. Um, I use this, this is, this is kind of a depiction of the hanging gardens of Babylon, but it was the idea that Babylon had been, kind of been building its house, its castle, its fortress, um, uh, for protection. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, in his own writings that we have recording of, he said that one of the chief purposes for strengthening the walls of Babylon was to make an everlasting name for his kingdom. So you get this whole idea of building this fortress for his dynasty. And that's what God is saying here. Um, but they built that dynasty, that those, all those protections, on the backs of the people uh, whom that they had conquered. And so the retribution was going to be very fitting, that the punishment was going to be that the stones and the rafters, those resources, the people themselves that they had conquered, would be crying out against that bloodshed, the cost at which the Babylon had built. And so what the very thing that he used to build up his house was going to be the very thing that would take him down. Again, very fitting. All right, now we've got a third oi. Oi! Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So this picture now is a picture of a glorious city. Um, it's a city you can almost can think of, built up on a hill, seen for everyone around, a symbol of glory for that empire. That's what they tried to do. But again, built on the backs of the subjected people. Um, as much as Babylon would revel in that fame and glory, they ca- called Babylon one of the seven <clears throat> wonders of the ancient world because it was so fantastic. It was going to be short-lived glory. And one day, the whole earth was going to only know the glory of God, and that would be their punishment. All right, a fourth oi. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Well, you've got this picture of a goblet. Now, the cup, that, that, that was a metaphor that was very commonly used in Old Testament times. In ancient days, the king would customarily hand the cup over to his guests at a royal banquet. And it, start, it became known as a metaphor. The cup was not just what was in the glass but it was a metaphor for a life and experience that God handed to people. You see that used in Psalm 23, where he says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. He's not just talking about a cup at a banquet. It's a metaphor for how God has just made his whole life so blessed. Well, Babylon subjected those that they covered, they conquered. And they did it in such a way that it left them very, exposed and vulnerable. They shamelessly disgraced those people whom they conquered. So it really was going to be a fitting punishment that the Babylonians would be shamed and disgraced in return. And then the last, Oi. Oi, woe to him who says to a piece of wood awake, to a mute stone arise, and is that your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. The Babylonians had a lot of gods. I did some, re- some uh, clicking around trying to find a good picture of a carved stone and the best I came up with was a kind of a relief painting because the Babylonians had a lot of different gods and they prayed to those gods and they gave those gods credit for when things would go well and they would win their battles and, and destroy other nations. Um, it was all about the false gods for them. But they were without excuse because God had already shown himself to them. It tells us in Romans 1, 21 to 23. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they came futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Well, all of those gods that Babylonians were praying to and were giving credit for all of their conquests, one day those ta- that talk would be silence because the Lord is alive and he's in his temple and he'll exercise that unch- unchallengeable authority one day and power and no one would dare to acknowledge anyone but him. So what did Habakkuk learn from these uh, these five woes that were being proclaimed on the Babylonians. Well, I think that they understood at le- he understood at least two things about God. The first is this: that nothing the Babylonians would do in their reign of t- terror was going unnoticed by God. He saw it. He saw exactly what their sins were, exactly what he was doing. He was aware of every crime perpetuated, not only on Israel but on the other people groups as well. Um, everyone had suffered at their hands, and God knew. God knew. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the punishment was going to always fit the crime. And I just very simply put a little chart together for you so that you can see. One, the first crime that he talked about in the woes was plundering the nations. The punishment, you will be plunder for them. Same thing with the uh, second woe, building security with the resources of conquered peoples. Well, those very resources are what going to be bringing you to ruin. Uh, the third woe, seeking glory for their empire, that city idea. And the punishment was that God was going to take that glory. You see how they're matching up so beautifully? The fourth one, that they had humiliated and disgraced their enemy. Their punishment would be they would be humiliated and disgraced. And then finally, that sin of worshiping false gods and that the true God would reign and silence their claims. So he get this idea, Habakkuk did, that... In no uncertain terms, justice was going to be served at the end. That God was a God that was just and he would right all wrongs and that Babylonians, uh, that that all the things that they had done, committed on mankind, would be paid for. Okay, so we've got that whole, we just gave you the whole text of chapter 2 between Steve and I. And so here's the question then. What does chapter 2 mean to us today in the 21st century? Well, I think it should affect how we think and interact
0: with God. Did you spot Habakkuk's error from chapter 1 in God's response? He had the wrong perspective. He saw Israel as less deserving of judgment than the Babylonians. He measured Israel's rejection of God against the Babylonians rejection of God, and pure evil. By comparing scriptures like we have, we can see the problem in trying to make those kinds of distinctions. Habakkuk sort of came with the approach, yeah, Israel, we have very poor grades. We haven't done so well with God. But look at Babylon, all Fs. And God's response... But Israel had engaged in the same type of rebellion. It's all the same to God. Matter of fact, he says through his prophet Isaiah, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, God's perspective is different. He is the eternal God, and his concern is his relationship with Israel and Babylon and the world and us, and you. Habakkuk had trouble seeing this perspective clearly because it's rooted in the nature of God himself. And we have trouble with that, really getting hold of it. You see, God is, well, you know, he's God. <laughs> and no, no thought anyone has ever had about him is better than he actually is. We have never overestimated God's character, His holiness, justice, goodness, and love. Everything we imagine is going to be inadequate, far short of who God really is. You know, the author Robert Capon likens our ability to understand and describe God uh, to a conversation that might happen between a rock and a starfish if they could talk. And they were tasked with talking about and describing the way a ballerina moves. They don't even have a mental constructs or the vocabulary to do it. They don't understand jumping and the effect of gravity on it, much less a batari, a ballerina move. <laughs> I think that's why God ended the chapter the way he did. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We know that God is transcendent. We simply have nothing we can add to the conversation.
1: And knowing that God is who he is, that should frame our perspective on what we see in our circumstances. Because I want you to notice something. If you read back through Habakkuk 1 and then read God's answer he didn't really answer Habakkuk's question uh, or questions because Habakkuk was asking one thing. Why? Well, God never answers that. He says, why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Why do you look on favor with those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why? That's what he's asking. And God never answers, why? And you know what? That happens with us, too. What's the first thing you ask when something bad comes along? Yesterday, it started raining an hour before the carnival ended. And guess what I thought in my head? Why? All this work's gone into this. We could have a whole nother hour of bringing people in from the community and showing our church or giving a good face, you know, in front of. Why, God, are you making it rain? It's always about the why. We're we're always asking, why me? Why did this happen to me? Why are you allowing this in our lives? Why are you being silent when I need you? Why? That's what we ask. But you know what? It's not really the question. We're not really giving voice to what we really want to know. That's God's honest truth. But we, we try to think of reasons. If God doesn't give them, we can make them up. And so we do. Well, I think God made this happen because of blah, blah, blah. And we give it to other people when they're asking why. Well, maybe it was because of this. And we try to give a reason why God is doing what he's doing. But those reasons, they really don't comfort us. You know why? Because it's not really the question we're asking. What we really want to know is unspoken. What we really want to know is, God, were you good? Were you good when that happened? Were you loving me when that happened? Were you present when I couldn't hear you? Were you good? That's what we want to know. That's the real question. We're desperate to know, can we trust God? Well, Habakkuk, he had questions. But really, his bottom line was, Not really about the Babylonians at all. His bottom line was, was God really good? Was he really holy that he would allow that sin to happen and go unanswered for so long? Was he really good to allow a wicked nation like Babylon to come in and destroy his people? He wanted to know, was God really good because the circumstances were giving him pause? So how did God respond well, he answered the question, not on back his lips, but the question that was in his heart. The answer, the real question. So what did he do? In his answer, he showed him, I am just. They're going to get what they deserve. In his hatred of sin, he was showing. He was holy. He would not tolerate it. Everything that happened was in his power, This wasn't something that was just going astray that he turned his head for a moment and, yep, that happened. It wasn't like that at all. His plans will not be thwarted. He was going to carry through and do what he purposed to do. In other words, Habakkuk, I am God in every sense of the word. And what Habakkuk learned through that dialogue and how God revealed himself would enable him to trust God no matter what things look like around him. Job had the same kind of an idea. When Job um, had terrible hardship come to him, he was a faithful man. There was no reason for it that he could see. And all these things started happening. His family's all killed off, except for his wife, who was no great prize. And then we had um, his servants were all killed. His livestock was stolen or killed. Everything went wrong. Job went from being a very rich man to humbled uh, with absolute dest- destitute in all of his possessions and his, his family scraping himself with a piece of pottery, sitting by a fire. He was destitute. And what did he ask? He asked, why? Why? Again, God gave him exactly what he needed. He gave him a bigger understanding of himself. And after he explained who he was, not what he was doing to Job, Job never found out what or why, but he found out who, he said this. This is what Job said. I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I've heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. The answer to Job's why, the answer to Habakkuk's why, was God giving who he is, to those people who are asking that question. So, rather than framing God by what we see in our circumstances, we have to do the opposite. We need to frame our circumstances in by what we know about God. Because who he is is really the answer to our questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this revelation that you gave a back and now we can read ourselves. We thank you that we can trust you in your holiness, in your goodness, in your justice. We can trust you because you're God and you'll always do the right thing. Help us, Lord, when we have circumstances we don't understand, when they actually make us doubt the substance of who you are. Help us, God, to not let the circumstances define what we think about you, but that what we know about you can define our understanding of the circumstances. Help us, God, to be faithful to you in this. We want to live by faith. We want what we know about you to run how we react and how we live. And we just uh, thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.